you're new or visiting uh, today, if you turn with me uh, uh, in our bulletins on page 8, and for those of you who've been following along for the past uh, season, uh, we've been looking at the book of Genesis, and uh, particularly at the life of Abraham the past month, and I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And this is God's word. Abraham uh, had uh, based everything, his career, his wealth, his family, his own spiritual character, his, his spirituality on the call of God. And at the end of Genesis chapter 21, that was last week, <clears throat> uh, we see uh, Abraham settling down. He's finally settling down, and he plants a tree. Finally, there's going to be some peace in this man's life. But then we come to this chapter, just one chapter later, chapter 22, the emotional and spiritual climax of Abraham's life. And scholars, scholars and commentators, they'll tell you, they, they find this passage uh, confusing, whether you're from the liberal or the, or the conservative uh, side, uh, all across the spectrum. They find this passage incredibly confusing, very, very disturbing. But isn't that life? That's life. One day, life will be calm and sweet. Next, it's going to be confusing and turbulent and disturbing. That's life. And it's why this passage is one of the greatest narratives in ancient literature, not just the Bible, but the whole of ancient literature. And uh, basically what it means is that living on the basis of the call of God, you're going to have God's presence, you're going to have God's promise, you're going to have God's sweet embrace, and yet it also means there's going to be pain, and there's going to be loss, and there's going to be suffering. So we're going to see what suffering looks like. We're going to see what it feels like. We're going to see how do you endure it. What does it look like? What does it feel like? How do you endure it? 
First, we're going to look at what does suffering look like. The first two verses, that's the call. And verses 1 and 2, verse 2 especially, it mimics the summary pretty much of Abraham's entire life. God says, take Isaac. Isaac's the one you love. Isaac's the son you love. I want you to go. I want you to leave, and I want you to offer him up. I want you to sacrifice him. God says, go. Remember that? Chapter 12, Abram's life, it was good. It was stable. But God says, I want you to go. I want you to leave. I want you to sacrifice all that you have, your family, your culture, your, your, your faith system back then. Chapter 13, I want you to sacrifice what you think is going to increase your options and potential. Chapter 15, I want you to wait for a son. Abram's almost 90 years old. I want you to wait. I want you to just trust me. I want you to sacrifice your options. Throughout his life, Abraham surrendered what he thought would increase his potential and freedom and options and worth and power and joy because of the call of God. And now we're at chapter 22. He's got a son. He's been waiting. And God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, the center of your life, and I want you to sacrifice him. Now, uh, in ancient times, all of uh, a family's wealth, all of a family's uh, future centralized around the firstborn son. And so the firstborn had status. The firstborn had a different type of meaning. The firstborn had power. In a sense, because there were no banks, there were no 401k policies, Isaac represented pretty much a summary of Abraham's net worth. And God is saying, I want you to give it all up. That's what he's saying. What does that mean? A Christian is not somebody who just hears the call of God once. It's not somebody who just hears the call of God one time. And, uh, and, and God basically then, when he calls you, uh, whether it's at a retreat or some sort of a Sunday service, it's not because he needs your wealth. It's not because he wants you to complete some sort of task. He wants your life. He wants you on mission. And so when God calls you, he's looking for you to build the entire pattern of your life, the entire pattern of your obedience on the basis of call. Will you live perfectly? You probably won't. You're going to make lots of mistakes. And yet he wants you to build the pattern of your life on the basis of his call. And he wants to apply that call over and over and over in your life. So over and over, if you look at Abraham's life, God called, the call made him. That call made him. But rehearing that call over and over and over in his life, that's what matured him. Over and over. It's, I want you to go. I want you to leave. I want you to sacrifice. I want you to offer up. If you forget that, your hardships will never make sense in your life. You're always going to be confused. You're always going to be anxious. How do you live a big life? Because that's what it means to live on the basis of a call. How do you live a big life? You have to process these hardships in the context of the call of God. So maybe what you love is being stripped away at times. Maybe what you uh, desired most in your life is being stripped away, it feels like. And sometimes it's not until you experience the devastating loss, some devastating loss in your life, that you start to actually process that call for Abraham to sacrifice his only son. It was a life-defining moment for him. What does suffering look like? A couple things. One, 
with the greatest areas of suffering in your life, if you are suffering and there are people around you, it's probably not going to be the greatest suffering in your life. Most great sufferings, you will suffer alone. Think about it. Illness, you may have people around you, but you are suffering alone. Because it's a personal call. God's call is a personal call. This passage, God is speaking only to Abraham. Abraham's a married man. He's walking with his son Isaac up the mountain. And yet, Abraham is the only one in action. He's alone. Secondly, in real suffering, life tends to almost feel like it's slowing down. It's grueling. There's this grueling, constant uh, constant pain. And it's because God is calling us to process the call in the context of suffering. In this passage, if you look at the pace from verses 3 to 13, Abraham gets up, verse 3, he gets up very early, and then you notice that details start to get very, very granular, and that's, that's actually remarkable in this time when this passage was written. The details become very granular. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his servants with him. He cuts just enough wood. Verse 4, the journey takes three days. He sees the place from a distance in three days. Verse 5, he has a conversation with his servants. It tells you exactly what he says. Verse 6, he takes the wood, places the wood on his son. He carries the fire. He carries the knife. Verses 7 to 8, there's this conversation, kind of a mundane conversation, that he has with Isaac. Where is the lamb? Verse 9, they get to a place. Abraham builds, Abraham builds this altar, and the text goes into great detail of Abraham binding his son, prepping him for the sacrifice. And then you get to verses 10 and 12. He's about to sacrifice his son when God calls to Abraham. Why this granularity? Why this level of detail? Because in ancient times, fiction is never told this way. I mean, my guess is because paper... Paper, you, you know, just go to Staples and buy paper back then, right? It was, a, it was a very expensive commodity. It was a very difficult commodity to acquire. And so you have to be very, very economical with your words. Fiction would never be told this way, and that's the point. In this oral culture, this wasn't fiction. This type of genre of fiction where you see intricate details uh, in a fictional account, it didn't come for, another, for thousands of years later. This is real. It's like news. And the details were included to kind of bring you along into the experience of Abraham, into Abraham's agony, three days' journey, step by step, grueling. He's just dying inside, grueling agony. He's about to sacrifice his one and only son. This is, this is deep agony that he's experiencing. And, of course, three, there's this intensity because the call of God is oftentimes overwhelming. As detailed as this account is, significant details are actually left out. You're not specifically sure where Abraham is going as an example. You're just supposed to trust. Verse 2 begins with emotional intensity. Abraham is overwhelmed. God says, I want you to take your son, your only son. You see in that, in that passage, that's a Hebrew doublet. Whenever you see the doublet listed there or, or represented, anytime you see that, it's in reference to somebody in the Old Testament. There's this emotional intensity. There's this emotional focus. It's almost as if God is crying as he's talking to Abraham. It's almost like he's, he's grieving himself. They're very, very heavy. By the way, look at God. Is he enjoying this in this passage? Is he having fun in this passage? A lot of times we look at God and say, how cruel, this is so disturbing that God would do this. Is he enjoying this as he's calling out to Abraham? No, 
God is suffering. Nothing's even happened yet. Nothing has happened yet. God himself is suffering as he's talking to Abraham. And you read at the end, Isaac is fine. Isaac is going to be fine. Isaac is fine. God knows, and yet he calls out Abraham because he sees Abraham. He knows Abraham. And so in the beginning, you see the doublet. Later on, he says, Abraham, Abraham. He cries out again. You see, the, I want you to, you've taken your only son. You've taken your son, your only son. You see that doublet again. God is passionate. He's weeping in your suffering. God is there weeping and grieving. What is suffering? Suffering is something that's so big. It's something that's so overwhelming that after a while you start to, there's this great intensity and you start to focus because you know that more than just about the circumstance, this is between you and God. Suffering, in suffering, you know you are so alone. Life is so hard. Things are, things are so grueling, so painful, and yet so intense. You're quaking. It makes you focus. That's what it looks like. What does it feel like? And the answer is simple. It's agony. What Abraham is being called to do is unimaginable. It's unthinkable. Isaac, most likely at this age, at this stage in his life, he's probably somewhere between 15 and in his 30s. He's at the age of marriage. And so he's not, he's not this young little child. This is decades of love. Decades of intimacy, decades of the father pouring out into the son. To the degree that you love somebody, to the degree that you're intimate with somebody is the degree of the pain and the agony you will feel when you lose them. You see that? But verse 2, he gets up early. It's probably because he stayed up all night. He gets up early, and he doesn't argue with God. You don't see him debating with God. You don't see him fighting with God. Why? Because he understood. He knew. The text, nowhere in this text, it's kind of odd. Nowhere in this text do you see how Abraham felt. The author wants you to experience it through his eyes, through his experience. Where's his wife? Where's his wife? Sarah isn't even mentioned in this passage. This is purely between Abraham and God. In verse 3, he's cutting the wood for the sacrifice himself. Later on, he takes the fire, he takes the knife. What's he doing? The wood, the fire, the knife. These things are all involved in the sacrifice of his son. What's he doing? He's owning the call. He's living into the call. He's taking the call, and he doesn't just hear it and say, yes, I feel it, and then walk away and kind of let it sit on a shelf. He's owning the call. That's what he's doing. Great agony, great suffering, lots of pain, and yet he's owning it. Verse 4, that trip takes three days. That's day-by-day painfulness, step-by-step. Every step is a step closer to uh, the end of what Abraham perceives as the end of his life. And notice, God doesn't tell Abraham, I want you to murder your son. That's not what he says. "I I want you to kill your son. That's not what he says. When I was younger, I read this passage and saw this because in a in verse first it says that uh, God tested Abraham. You realize later that's not exactly what the word means, right? I read it as, a, oh, this is God testing to see if Abraham really loves him, right? That would be incredibly harmful in some ways, right? It's not really a test. If this was just to see if Abraham would obey, Abraham would have just taken a knife, stabbed Isaac to death right there. 
That would be an incredibly ungodly act. That is not of the character of God. God never desires that. God doesn't say, I want you to kill your son. He says, I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to offer up your son. And he knew. Abraham knew what that meant. What does it mean to sacrifice something in, that, in those ancient times? See, Isaac was the hope of his family. It's why Abraham loves him so much. It's why he's just doting on Isaac. Everything that Abraham owned was centered around Isaac as the firstborn. The firstborn is the sum of your wealth, the sum of your reputation, the sum of your worth. But it's also why God always demands, in the Old Testament, he always demands the firstborn. The firstborn cattle, the firstborn first fruit, right? The first fruit is the firstborn of the harvest, right? The firstborn son. They all belong to God. Giving up your firstborn, it really meant that regardless what happens, I don't know if I'm going to have another replacement. I don't know if I'm going to have another one. If you sacrifice the firstborn of your harvest, I don't know if the harvest is going to be good. If you sacrifice your firstborn cattle, I don't know if I'm going to have another cow. You see, you could be giving everything up. That's what it represented. And giving this up, giving Isaac up, it was more than just losing a son. Abraham is being called to sacrifice what represented the whole of who he was, his worth, his reputation, his status, his wealth. To forfeit Isaac is to forfeit his sense of worth. And if you recall, all through the life of Abraham, he's forfeiting the promise that God made him. In his mind, he can't, I mean, he's forfeiting. To lose Isaac is to lose the promise of God. God's using this cultural, ancient law of primogeniture to call back his debt of sin. A debt that every family owed. A debt that Abraham owed. A debt that we owe. And Abraham knew. It's why he didn't argue. He knew. He understood. What do I mean by this debt of sin? A sin debt was always placed on the firstborn. Only Isaac could pay. It's why Abraham wasn't asked to sacrifice his wife, you see. It's more than this passage being about Abraham's obedience. It's about Abraham giving back to God what already belonged to God in the first place. Because the sin debt was always on the firstborn. And because it was always on the firstborn, Isaac represented the sin of his entire family. And according to the promise of God, a descendant of Abraham, a son, would represent the sin of the entire world. And so that was the promise that one day, Isaac, his son, a son born from Abraham, would redeem the whole world of all of its brokenness and sin. You see that? That was the promise. And so here Abraham reasoned, ah, if I sacrifice this son of promise, if I sacrifice Isaac, this is how my family will be redeemed. This is how I will be redeemed. This is how the world will be redeemed. Isaac, the only son, must be consumed for my sins. And in the process, God is at the same time removing the one thing that was starting to take over Abraham's life, the one thing that was mastering Abraham, the one thing that was owning Abraham. Abraham loved Isaac. He doted on Isaac. He centered every day around Isaac, his son, because of what he represented in his life. How do you, you know, whenever you have something that, become, that starts to become more important then your relationship with God, we call that an idol. That's what it is. How do you identify an idol? Think about the one thing in your life 
that if you were to lose it, it would, it would absolutely ruin you. Think about the one thing in your life. If I were to lose this thing or this person in my life, it would absolutely devastate me, just completely ruin me. Is it bankruptcy? Irreparable damage maybe to your reputation? Losing status? The life, that life that you have, your spouse, your children. For Abraham, it was his child. For Abraham, he was torn apart because he's about to lose his son, but he understood the sin debt. That was the call. He had to pay. Isaac had to pay. Somebody had to pay. Isaac would pay. Now, let me speak to you. Let me take off my pastor hat for a moment. Let me speak to you like a father for a minute, okay? Every one of us, we're going to experience moments in our lives where we're absolutely miserable. There are going to be moments in your life where you literally feel like you're crawling on the floor, if not physically, if not for real, just metaphorically, you're just crawling on the floor and you're quaking because every solid foundation that you once knew or understood or embraced is being shaken in your life. And if you haven't experienced that, you probably will at some point in your life. What's this passage teaching us? God is telling us you got to walk that journey. You know, the, the, it would be too trite to say you got to hang in there, but you got to walk that journey because God is present. He is there. He's not at the end of some 911 call. He's right there in your suffering. Even when you think he's absent, he's present, and Abraham knew that. He understands. He knew. Verse 5, what does he say? We will worship. It's not random. What he's saying is, I love Isaac so much, it's as if I was worshiping Isaac. But I'm turning my worship to God. Yes, I treasure my son. Yes, my heart is right now being torn apart. It's ripping apart. But nothing is worth more than my relationship with God. And he called me. He spoke to me. He's alone Life is absolutely heavy and intense right now. It's grueling. But he's saying, God is speaking to me, and I'm heeding the call. Look to the word of God. You're looking for the voice of God? Look to the word of God because he's calling. He's speaking to you. Maybe he's removing some sort of spiritual tumor from your heart because it's become an idol in your life, and it's become more important than God in your life something that you can't live without, and it's actually, you know, this thing that we think is going to increase our options and joy and freedom is actually eventually going to decrease your options and joy and freedom, you see? This is something that Abraham can't live without when his relationship with God is the only thing that you really can't live without, you see that? Maybe we're looking at our careers in a, in, a, in a way that is more than it's meant to be. Maybe we're looking at our wealth in a way that's more than it's meant to be. Maybe we're looking at our marriage as something more than it's meant to be or our children as something more than it's meant to be. And suffering loss, losing any one of those things, it feels like you're going under the knife. It feels like you're being ripped apart. It's painful. It feels like death in some ways. But God isn't a butcher. See, he's a surgeon. He's skilled. He's wise. He's healing. And he can save. How do you endure it? Last point, how do you endure it? In verses 6 to 8, this is the only recorded conversation between Isaac and Abraham in the entire Bible. Isaac says, 
Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb? Because you need a lamb for the sacrifice. It's ironic because in verse 2, they're headed to Moriah. And that's where the temple in Jerusalem would be built. It's where the high priest spends a lifetime sacrificing lambs at the altar. And Abraham replies, God will make a way. God will provide. He's trusting God. Verse 5, he says, we will worship and we will come back to you. It's amazing what he says. We will worship and we will come back. Meaning, either the justice of God will prevail and Isaac's going to pay the price and, and he's going to fulfill that promise or the mercy of God will prevail if God makes a way. And Abraham, he couldn't reconcile the justice of God. Isaac has to pay the price for the justice of God, our sin, with the mercy of God. He had to reconcile, and he couldn't reconcile, but somehow he knew that both of them had to be upheld because he knew God to be a loving God, a gracious God, a compassionate God, a merciful God, but he also knows him to be a righteous God, a holy God, a just God. How do you bring these two things together? Now, you have to understand this. If God is good, a lot of us, we look at that and say, why can't he just let everyone go? I mean, if God is really good, if he's really loving, why can't he just let us all go? Think about if you've ever been hurt at any point in your life, deeply, deeply hurt in your life. Can you just let that person go? In fact, the degree that you've been hurt is the degree you feel in your heart they must pay. That is called justice, you see? Somebody has to pay. And if God is good, he has to be just. If God is loving, he has to be just. You know why? Because if he lets even one sin go, evil wins. And God is a good God. And he's a faithful God. And so he has to be just. If he's truly loving, he has to be just. If he's truly holy and righteous, he has to be just. And Abraham is trying to reconcile this holy and just and righteous God with his mercy and his compassion and his love and his grace. Somehow they have to be reconciled. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, the author says this, Abraham believed that even if he sacrificed his son, God would bring Isaac back from the dead. Maybe that's how he's going to do it. God would bring Isaac back from the dead. Somehow, God is merciful. He will be merciful somehow, even though he has to be just. Even though there has to be judgment, even though there's a promise. They both have to prevail. And so we get to verses 10 to 12. Abraham binds his son, Isaac, on the altar. And he's about to sacrifice his son when the angel of the Lord stops him. Abraham, Abraham. But it's not an angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. And anytime you see that distinction, the angel of the Lord is, re- is a reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus, the Son of God. In other words, God is stopping Abraham. And instead, he provides this ram that's caught in the thicket, a substitute for Isaac. And later in verse 14, Abraham names that mountain, God will provide. On the mountain of the Lord, God provides. And that means that Abraham finally understood the whole picture. He gets it. What did he get? Because if we get it, then we will be able to endure and understand, at least try to process and offer up in our suffering. Think about this. If God let Abraham sacrifice Isaac, that means that salvation can be earned. 
It can be earned through your sacrifices. It can be earned through uh, your, your obedience. And Abraham would then have named the mountain what? I provided. On the mountain of the Lord, I provided. On the mountain of the Lord, I sacrificed. By the way, that is modern society. Modern society today, it's all about you sacrificing and you being able to accomplish and you being able to achieve and you being able to ascend. You see that? But God stops Abraham. Why? Because salvation is dependent on God's provision by grace and only by grace, by God's sheer grace. Because the whole point is you can't earn your salvation. The point is you can't earn God's acceptance and his love on your own. The debt is too great. Our sin debt is so great we can't pay. The entire narrative, this entire narrative serves as a pattern of life for the rest of our lives, for the rest of us, because this is how the justice of God will be reconciled with the promise of God. God will provide a substitute. He will provide a ram. He will provide a lamb for the sins of the world, and he does. In John chapter 1, we have John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when he first encounters Jesus Christ, what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. In other words, John the Baptist, he saw the promise to Abraham. He's looking and reflecting on God's promise to Abraham, and he sees it fulfilled when he encounters Jesus. He says, this is the Lamb of God. This is the one who will pay the ultimate sin debt for the entire world. For anyone who believes, the Lord provides. Abraham's altar became this place, became the place of the temple. The temple of Jerusalem was basically based on Abraham's altar, but it's also in the vicinity of another mountain, another hill called Calvary, where another father would indeed sacrifice his own son for the sins of the world. Centuries later, what do you see? Jesus Christ, he's alone. Jesus is alone. And the night before he would be sacrificed, he's praying all night. He stays up all night. Jesus would experience the grueling agony of the hours, the trial, the intensity. Isaac, he carries his own wood. Abraham places the wood on Isaac, and he carries it for the sacrifice up the mountain. That word wood in the Hebrew language is a very particular wood. It's the word eats. And what it basically, it's most often used in reference to God's judgment. In other words, what, what Isaac was doing, he was carrying the judgment of God. He was carrying the wrath of God. That's what the wood represented. And in the New Testament, that word is often translated to mean the word cross. Jesus Christ, he's not just a, a, a martyr. He's not just a religious leader. He's not just a teacher. What are we seeing here? He is our substitute. Most of us growing up, we saw Jesus as a great teacher, a moral example, but he's so much more than that. What do we see here? Jesus is our substitute. Isaac, he carried his own wood. Jesus Christ will carry the cross. Isaac waited, and he risked his father's knife. He risked the sacrifice. But on the cross, Jesus Christ wouldn't just risk the father's knife with a sacrifice. Isaiah 53 says what? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced. He was run through for our sins. Jesus Christ endured the full blade, the full brunt of God's judgment. He took it all. He paid it all. When Abraham's hand was about to come down, the angel of the Lord stopped him. Now think about this. You got to get your arms wrapped around this. This is God, the pre-incarnate Jesus, 
looking at Abraham about to sacrifice his own son to pay our sin debt, the debt that we owe. This is Jesus calling out, Abraham, Abraham, he's weeping and he's crying and he's calling out to Abraham and he's saying, I will not let you pay. You cannot pay. I will pay. I will provide the substitute because I am the substitute. I am the ultimate sacrifice. Look at the amazing love of Jesus. Look at the compassion of Jesus. Look at the grace of God. He's looking at Abraham and he repeats that doublet. He says, do not let anything happen to him. Do not do anything to him. Your son, your only son, that's Jesus, knowing the debt, knowing the cost, owning it himself, taking away the burden. And with emotional tensity, he's weeping and he's grieving and he's quaking. He's saying this. He's saying, I know your pain. I understand and see your pain and your suffering. And now you understand my father's pain over your sin my father's pain over the cost of your sin. Look at the intimacy of God. Look at the intimacy of God. God gives Abraham a mere picture, just a slice of his own agony when he's about to sacrifice his own son. Do you see that? And yet God here in this lesser sacrifice that doesn't even have to go through in full, God is quaking for Abraham. Take your son, your only son. And on the cross, what do you see? There is a real earthquake there was a real earth. It said the rocks split. The holy temple curtain tore in half, right? And Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's that Hebrew doublet again. My God, my God. He's quaking and he's weeping. And he's saying, yes, I am alone. Yes, it's grueling and intense, the pain. Yes, but this is the ultimate trial. This is the ultimate suffering. I'm being ripped apart, my body, but my heart and my soul are being torn apart on the cross. Because God, my Father, has been torn from me. The Trinity literally has been torn apart. My Father has been separated from me. The center of my life and my joy, my options and my freedom has been separated from me. God, who has doted on me, has now rejected me and has forsaken me. And still, Jesus obeyed. He went all the way. Do you know, When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22. You know what that means? That in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of his body and his soul being ripped apart, he was worshiping. He was still worshiping. God has turned away from it, and yet Jesus is still worshiping, still trusting his Father. Even as the blood and the sweat and the thorns, the blood is dripping and spilled, he is worshiping. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Look at the agony of Abraham. And he only experienced a glimpse, a glimpse of the agony that God himself as the Father would experience as Jesus died on the cross. Jesus Christ on the cross. There's the justice of God meeting the mercy of God. And as many famous people have said on the cross, the justice and mercy of God embrace. They kiss. Somebody had to pay the debt of sin. Only Jesus could, and he did. Only Jesus would, and he gladly did, you see, for us. Jesus Christ was disowned by the Father so you could be owned by the Father. Jesus Christ paid the price so that you could be redeemed by the Father. Jesus Christ lost the intimacy of God, his intimacy with God on the cross, so you could have the intimacy of God 
Jesus Christ is the true descendant, the true son of Abraham who'd come to redeem and heal all the brokenness caused by our sin in the world. You've got to trust his word. You've got to trust his promise. He's good for it. In the midst of suffering, you've got to look to his word. We're so quick in our generation to look for a way out. You've got to process that pain. You've got to look to Christ in his word. In the midst of your agony, look to his promise. In the midst of your trials, look to his faithfulness. Because even at the cost of his own life, the cost of his own life, God has been faithful, and he is present, and he's there grieving for you. The cross reminds us that's how you endure trials. That's how you live out the call of God, and that's how you live a big life. Obedience is merely the mark of that trust. The gospel gives you freedom from sin. The gospel gives you freedom from that debt of sin, but also gives you freedom from those idols because when you look to Jesus, when you look to the cross, what do you see? There's the measure of your worth. You want to think about your reputation? That's your ultimate reputation. You want to think about the love and the acceptance that you so crave from others? There's the love and acceptance of God and God's embrace in your life where every time you look at the cross, you realize he was rejected so that God could bring you in. You are in. You are loved. There is the measure of your worth. That should give you poise in suffering when you're losing things. That should give you courage when you're losing things. That should give you hope in the midst of your own suffering because you can surrender. You can have the courage to surrender. You can. The courage to sacrifice. The courage to offer up. The courage to go. The courage to leave. The courage to wait. The courage to let go of things that you think in your own mind that will increase your options and potential and joy and worth apart from the true option. We tend to say, I want power, and we forget true power. We tend to say, oh, I want love. We forget about true love. You cannot do that apart from the Father. There is the measure of your worth. The hymn says what? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and to know, thus saith the Lord. Look to his word. Trust him. Don't just trust in him. Trust him. Let's pray.